The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. We are moving our way through how to understand and apply the Old Testament. You'll remember that there were five main areas that I'm covering here. Text, observation, context, meaning, and application. And we are in the fourth chapter coming to the the last of the units focused on text. What is the makeup of the passage? So today is translation. Our goal at this stage is to translate the text and then compare it to other translations. And if you're an English Bible only person, then you do the second half. You're looking at maybe the English Standard Version, and if you want to go deep, you want to consider how other translations handled your verse or verses. So here's what we're going to cover today. Number one, a missional vision for Bible translation. God's given us In this room right now, two global partners whose focus in life is Bible translation. The benefit of multiple English translations in Bible study and engaging different translations and translation theories. Why do we have so many different translations? And how should we think about them? So that's where we're headed. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you meet us week after week. I thank you so much for giving us your word in our heart language. Yet there are so many peoples on the planet who yet do not have such a reality. I pray that you would awaken more in this generation who would commit themselves to study and engagement. For faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. So move us today to be more faithful men and women of your book and to pray with you that you would raise up laborers for such a harvest. Through Christ I ask. Amen. All right. Just some basic facts up front. According to Wycliffe, only 2,932 of the approximately 7,000 languages have at least some Bible. This leaves almost 4,000 languages without any access to Scripture. With that, we should just stand in awe that we in the English-speaking world have so many translations. Faith comes by hearing, hearing from the Word of Christ. So the translated Word of God is essential, essential for people to be able to come to the Lord. Biblical foundations for Bible translation. So the Old Testament is given to us in Hebrew, but the New Testament authors don't hesitate at all to cite their Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Old Testament was given to one people group, 
the Hebrews, the Israelites, the New Testament is given to a global church. And so, rather than using a restricted language like Hebrew, the New Testament is written in the lingua franca, the the common language of the original day in the New Testament, Greek. Whatever was written in former days, Paul says, was written for our instruction. And when he writes that in Romans 15, 4, he's actually citing the Greek Old Testament. So, like me, opening up my ESV and teaching from it in this class, Paul's simply opening up his Septuagint and teaching from it to the Romans. Ezra, the Levites, upon the second return to the land wanted to tell the people the law, but they had been in Babylon long enough that they'd forgotten Hebrew. They were learning the common language of that region, which was Aramaic. So when it says that they helped them understand the law, it most likely means that they were translating it to them, moving from Aramaic, sorry, from the Hebrew back over to Aramaic, where they could understand it. Pentecost. God allows people, Jews, from every nation under heaven to hear the mighty works of God in their own language. These are all just biblical grounds for the legitimacy of Bible translation. It's just awesome. In contrast to how the Muslims think, God's word can actually have full power in other languages. Praise be to God for that. We can have the Bible in our heart language, and it can sing to us in that way. Hope of Bible translation. As you know, in in response to the Tower of Babel incident, God scattered nations all across the globe. From Noah came Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Out of those three sons came 70 families that made up all the nations of the world. They were scattered at the Tower of Babel. And it was there that the Lord confused the languages. And yet it was those very families, clans, as Genesis 10.32 calls them, says clans in 10.32, and then it says in 12.3, families, but it's the same word, Through you, Abraham, all the families, that is, all the clans of the earth, will be blessed. Those very ones whose languages were confused, who were scattered all over the globe under the curse of God, they are God's target for mission. And God says, through you, Abraham, I'm going to bring this blessing. It is the daughter of that community that was dispersed at Babel. That is, offspring, generations later, that was dispersed at Babel, that God declares He will change their language, change their tongue, purifying it, not uniting it. It doesn't suggest a single language would happen in the new creation, but rather a single profession of people from every tongue and tribe, language and nation, gathered around the throne, proclaiming in one voice, our God reigns. Calling in unison upon the name of the Lord. Zephaniah 3, 9 and 10. He'll change 
the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. And then, where's it headed? Revelation chapter 7. A multilingual community from every nation on earth declaring with one voice every tongue, tribe, people, and nation salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Forever, it appears, there will be a multilingual, multi-ethnic community. And yet, having an ability to understand one another and having one common profession, our Savior reigns. We will need to be a people that prays that the ministry of Bible translation would run in the 21st century. Nearly 4,000 people groups needing the Word of God. So here we are in English-speaking America with a volume of English translations. Why do we have so many? And how do we understand them? Is there a way to group them? What was guiding the men and women who did these translations? So I want to consider the benefit of multiple English translations in Bible study. Some facts. In light of the global need, English speakers should stand in awe that we have so many of these translations to consider. Now, usually churches get drawn to a single translation, but I want to urge you today to... All of this study is about learning how to go to read the Bible for depth and not just for distance. And in that process of digging for gold and not just raking for leaves, consider other Bible translations when you do your Bible study. So if you can't read the original languages, the more you can familiarize yourself with the various translations, the more you're going to be aware of where there might be challenges in the text. Where one translation committee might make a different call than another translation committee. And because we have so many English translations, that's wide, that's wide available for you. So let's consider a very familiar text, the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. There's more, no more foundational verse in all of Judaism, and through Christ, even Christianity, than this one declaration. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's how the ESV renders this. So what we have is after hero Israel, four words. No verbs, just four independent words. You can see them numbered up there. Yahweh, our God, our God has the dash in it to say it's one word in Hebrew. Yahweh, one. Yahweh, our God, Yahweh, one. Now as we approach these four words... If we've got a range of Bible translations open, all of a sudden we're going to find, huh, 
Not everybody's in agreement as to how we should put these together. When you come to a group of words in the Hebrew Bible that don't have any verb attached, it means usually you need to add a verb or two. Am, is, are, was, were, be, being, or been. You're going to fit it into this verse and make a clause. But the message, paraphrase, thought these are four Nominals, Yahweh, our God, Yahweh, one. And when the message took this, it said, I don't think this is a, even a sentence. It's just a verbless slogan. Here's the message. Whenever I read this, I think kind of like uh, Braveheart. And uh, William Wallace on his steed, flag in hand, and he's just screaming to rally the troops. God, our God! God, the one and only! And everybody screams. So that's the message. It's a slogan. A verbless slogan. That's how one translation put it together. Most translations, however, say this group of four words actually makes a single clause. So let's consider. Here's how the... the, uh, KJV renders it, the Lord our God is one Lord. Now that works in English, but notice that L-O-R-D is in capital letters. That's the name Yahweh. So if you were to step in and see how are they translating this, it would be Yahweh our God is one Yahweh. So if you read that in the King James, it could lead you to think, The point of the text is to battle poly-Yahwism. Like there's a Yahweh of Bethel and a Yahweh of Jerusalem and a Yahweh of Hebron and everyone has their own manifestation of this God. Is that what this text is talking about? The King James might lead you to think so. Well, how about the ESV, the NIV? The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. Well, Yahweh, causer of all things, used two times, Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. Distinctive, supreme, unique. That could have a different feel than what we read in the King James. Still, one clause. With original meaning of Yahweh being He is, He is our God, He is one. Does that simplify or complicate if you read it more that way? Um... Versus Ekwe, our God, Ekwe is one, Yahweh. Right. So... Exodus 3.14, you have, I am who I am, and then you have the, so that's in first person, I, God, when God talks about himself, he calls himself I am, but our reference to him is Yahweh rather than Ehweh, and, but rather than he is, I think it means he causes to be. And so the causer... Our God, the causer, is one. 
That would be more how I would, I would take it. And the repetition of Yahweh suggests that it is drawing attention to the nature of this name that we are supposed to remember. Exodus 3 said it was his memorial name. Don't forget it, what Yahweh means. Um, so that is informing my rendering of stressing Yahweh's supremacy, the causer of all, and the oneness related to his uniqueness in such a world. How about the New Revised Standard Version? The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. So you get that sense of, you've got the verb placed in there, Yahweh is our God, but it places the verb in the first part, in the A part, rather than in the B part. So in the ESV, it's, it placed the is in the second half. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Whereas the New Revised Standard puts the verb in the first half. The Lord is our God, and then it renders one as alone. The Lord alone is our God. So with this, you've got an identification that Yahweh is our only God. Stressing on only, Yahweh alone. There might be other gods in this world, but for us, our God is the Lord. Oh, is it? The NLT has that as well. Okay. So here's the contemporary English Bible. Not much different. Places the verb in the first half again. But notice how it put our God in front of the Lord. Our God is the Lord. Only the Lord. Our God is Yahweh. Only Yahweh. And in doing so, it really asserts it, it gives greater stress to who is your God. Our God is Yahweh. It just adds a little bit of a, a different taste to it. That's why I put 4A and 4B. And then finally, we have the New American Standard, which takes these four words and makes them into two clauses. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And that's kind of a combination of both the statement of God's supremacy and uniqueness and the statement that He is our God, and it brings them together. Now, the challenge for us is not to say, well, number five um, includes the most possibilities, so that, I'll, I'll fill that one. I'll, I'll use that one because... It's the, the one that, that bears the most possible meanings. Now, our challenge is, which one fits the context best? And which one represents the original Hebrew the best? And as English Bible-only folk, you're pretty much faced with the first question, which one fits the context the best? And then you open up study Bibles and commentaries, and you begin to wrestle, what are they saying? Why are they coming to the conclusions that they are? My point here is simply to identify, huh, a very, very foundational verse, and all of a sudden we see five different perspectives on its meaning. That makes it tricky. Most of the translations, because most clauses have, verses, have verbs, Aren't, aren't this tricky? 
But having different translations open can serve us. It can make us ask questions that we never knew we should be asking. If you want to know my take on this, you can go to the grammar chapter, which is the one coming up. I maybe shouldn't have told you that. Nobody will want to come. Um, the, the grammar chapter, and, and I unpack why I think the English Standard Version, the ESV, and the NIV actually get it right. How much do the translators also take versions of the Septuagint into account? Great question. So how often do our English translators account for the Septuagint when they're wrestling? The Septuagint is one of... It's just one more translation that we would engage. Happens to be in a different language than ours, but um, it's also the very earliest commentary, as it were. Every translation at some level is a commentary. There's interpretation going on, and so it's it's closer to the Old Testament than we are. And but but we always keep in mind that it's only one group of Jews' perspective on what, how they were reading the text. And they read it as very, it appears to be very much like the ESV because they, they add the verb in the second half of the clause and they just have the Lord our God the Lord is one. That's how Jesus cites it also in the New Testament, just pulling it straight out of the, out of the Greek, his Greek Bible. And it is the fact that in Mark chapter 12, when Jesus includes this verse in Mark chapter 12, usually when he cites the Shema, he only includes the love commandment, which is the very next verse. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. He usually only cites that part. But in Mark 12, he includes, this is the first and greatest commandment. Hear and love. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he engages a leader regarding the meaning of it. And the man interprets the meaning, and Jesus says, you're right. So, the, and the meaning that he interpreted, that he interpretates, that he interprets, the meaning that he interprets, um, I didn't even drink anything this morning. I just, I, I feel funny. Um, the meaning that he interprets is very much aligned with option number three, focusing on the greatness of God and the uniqueness of God. And I think that's further support, but not the only support. You can read what I had to write, what I wrote. Kind of a weird question, but in this instance, is that not somewhat a benign question? It seems like um, it's a richness to have various ways of looking at that verse as opposed to uh, uh, a pitfall for error or whatever. But that's just my, you know... Well, the challenge is a richness from looking at it from different perspectives if you're looking at it the right way. But if this was not about confronting polyawism, then we shouldn't interpret it that way. So more options isn't always better. We want to simply understand what was 
the divine author's intent when he spoke the words. So, yes. I think the ESV is right, which is number three. And you can read in my book why, but you won't, but I, but I won't read it. Okay. But it, it's number three. That's fine. I love the honesty, Phil. What is the need for so many translations? I'm going to touch on that shortly because it has to do with translation theory and the purpose behind various translations. And I think that there is... Um, well, I'll, I'll note two things right now. If you're not working with the original Hebrew, you are fully reliant on someone else's handling of the text. And so it's a gift to a community... To be able to not have to rely only on one person, but to get a broader perspective on how people are rendering a passage. The, and then you can wrestle more faithfully with what you believe the original meant. There, there are certain translations that do more work than others at interpretation. And depending on the context, that can be very helpful. Um, my father, for example, never learned Greek and Hebrew, and the New International Version does more interpretation than the ESV does in its handling, rendering of the text. And the fact that there were godly scholars working on the NIV, knowing that my dad will look at some study Bible notes, some commentary, but not much. He's going to rely a lot on the New, the New International Version for his preaching. Um, I celebrate that people like D.A. Carson, Doug Moo, Greg Beal, are helping to guide his understanding of that text. Um, through higher level interpretation. But if you're working with Greek and Hebrew, preaching from a text that includes more interpretation can be more of a challenge because you feel like you're going to be, you, you may disagree with the interpretive steps that that translation committee made that a translation committee that was not making as many interpretive leaps, um, you may not have to stand against that Bible that people are holding and say, I, I would have rendered it a different way as often. Um, but I'll talk more about that shortly. Say it, and then I would, that's why I heard. And it, it resonates so much more, and we 
Yeah, no, I think you're. I think you're right. There's a benefit to traditions retaining a given Bible translation for the sake of Bible memory and for the sake of it feeling alive. And Bible translation uh, companies know that, and it makes them very cautious. Even if scholars have come to determine a certain verse is rendered the wrong. It, it, it just, that's not what it means in English. They're very cautious to change it because this one is so dear to people. And so there's a give and a take, a challenge. Um, but I think it's helpful for local congregations to pick a, pick a translation and work with it. Um, and here, that's what we've done in saying we're going to use the ESV for our fighter verse program and uh, I'm teaching from it today. Um, so if you move around and you don't read the verse so much, it's just a real hindrance for us on our life. Everything in my youth... Everything in my youth was through NIV. Everything. And um, so I still recite verses. Even in this, class, in this room, I, I recite them in the NIV from what I learned as a child. And I don't feel compelled to alter that. I've got the word in me, and I can keep it as such. But when I go to memorize new stuff, I've got to decide where am I going to go. I memorize out of the ESV. I do. <laughs> I, I have really got to get going, or I'm going to be in trouble. So I just want to give us an overview here of translation theories and where the various translations fit. So, Bible translations differ on whether they are form, sense, or idea equivalent. So, and, and different folks writing on this topic, talking about it, I'm sure if I got a, my two Bible translators in here who give their lives to this area, they'd talk about it a little bit differently, but I'm hoping I'll at least be generally faithful to their, their calling. Um, but whenever I'm working with my students through Bible translation, I let them know what I'm looking for. And at different times, I might be looking for different types of translation. Form, think about that, aligning with the forms as much as possible, just aligning with the sense versus just the concept, just the idea. And let's consider this. And then the other area that they differ is the degree of gender-inclusive language. And by that I mean, if in the Greek text it says, I gathered with all the brothers, which it often says, but it, as, in, um, as in Spanish, when you say brother, it can automatically mean brother and sister. So too in the Greek text, but not in every instance. 
And so certain translations will be, it says brother, we'll say brother. And we'll leave it up to the teacher to identify that it's brother and sister. Whereas other translations will say, if it meant brother and sister, even though it just says brother, we'll write in brother and sister, even though it's not part of the text. Because that's what it meant. So that's the other area. Form, sense, idea equivalence, and gender inclusivity. Let's consider this. Different translation theories or principles stand behind the various versions of our Bible. And what it does is it creates a continuum of equivalence. How close does the daughter translation relate to the mother source? And in what ways does it relate? And there's specifically three areas that we can consider this. Lexical, grammatical, and historical. So let's consider this. When I say lexical, you may have heard of a lexicon. It's about words. Lexicography is the study of words. So how closely do the translators attempt to render single words in the source text into individual words in the target language. It is impossible when moving from one language to another to expect exact equivalency. But certain translations work harder than others to try to make it word for word, back and forth. Grammatical correspondence. How closely does word order and syntax in the original language aligned with the word order and syntax in the translation. And so much of it depends on what type of a language you're putting up against a different kind of language. So if it's a Semitic language versus an Indo-European language, that's going to impact how closely we're able to work here grammatically. And then historical correspondence. If they're living in a culture with goats and sheep and you're writing to a highly urban area, can you reverse it with cats and rats? Is that okay? Certain translations, theories would say it may be. Let's consider So there's strengths and weaknesses to each approach, and it's not my goal today to say, you've got to use the ESV. In fact, I think the ESV is very, very good for certain things, and it may not be the best for others. So it depends on what is the purpose of this translation. For what? Is it for public reading, or is it for Bible study? So here's the spectrum, and the colors didn't quite transfer over. But this wide spectrum of an equivalency continuum, you'll see the form equivalence on one side, sense equivalence in the middle, idea equivalence on the other side. And as you move, so Young's literal translation made at the end of the 1800s is about as wooden as can be. It it attempted beyond reason to make grammar, English grammar, align with Hebrew grammar and words in English align with single Hebrew words. And it 
gets, it comes to the point where some sentences are, are just absolutely nonsensical. Then you move in one stage and you get things like the New American Standard or the original King James. And there's benefits to how this works. But some people read it and they still feel like it's a little wooden. Like, this isn't quite my English. The ESV, whoops, the ESV tries to get a little bit closer than the New American Standard did in speaking in colloquial English while also trying, especially in the New Testament, much far less in the Old, to retain keywords like conjunctions, which can be very helpful for you and me as English speakers, to track the flow of thought if we can't open up our Hebrew or our Greek text. Now, as we move into the sense equivalence spectrum, we come to the New International Version, and what they're doing is saying, I want to try to capture in English language what this verse means in Hebrew. That means they're going to retain historical correspondence, but they are willing to give up lexical and grammatical correspondence if it means that I can communicate it better in English. As you move over, the New Living Translation, which was mentioned this morning, is still a sense equivalence translation, but it's a little bit closer, a little bit less even strict than the the NIV is, a little bit more close to a paraphrase, but still within an actual translation. When we get over to the idea equivalence spectrum, some of you uh, grew up probably with the living Bible. At my house, it was big and green. And um, it's very colloquial. It's very um, common language, as, as we might speak. But they were willing to lay aside not simply grammar, not simply words, but even history, as we're going to see. They were willing in the Living Bible to, to totally take it out of an Iron Age culture, a, a Greco-Roman culture, and put it right into the 21st century, 20th century, rather. And then the message, that's the, the other paraphrase translation. It, it really is much more of a paraphrase. You, when you open up the message, how many have opened up the message before? The message can't even have verses. It doesn't have verse references. It just has paragraph groupings because it has reworked the text in so many ways to try to make it sing for a hip-hop culture. Jesus came up to his disciples. What's up, dudes? It'll say that. And some youth groups choose to use that because Jesus talked like me. How should we think about this? So let me just walk through form, sense, and idea equivalence for us. Form equivalence is when you're trying to retain correspondence of words, grammar, and history. The top form equivalent translations that I prefer are the New American Standard and the ESV. And what I'm going to encourage you to do is if you want to study your Bible for depth, 
I encourage you to have... There it is. Um, I encourage you to have one translation from each of these three spheres. Or what you're really going to see is... um, My preference is to just use the form and sense equivalents and get three translations at different parts of that spectrum. I usually, for my study, I don't go into the idea equivalence realm. So just three different translations on the spectrum. And my choice is always New American Standard, ESV, and NIV, or New American Standard, ESV, and NLT. That's, that's where I go. So strengths of a form-based translation, like the ESV is attempting to do, and even more, the New American Standard. The New American Standard, especially, even more than the ESV, is is very helpful. In fact, I, I can't think of a better translation to use if you're wanting to track the flow of thought. How many of you have taken arcing here at, at the church? Arcing is just a manner of Bible study that allows you to visually represent the relationship between clauses. And we're going to look at that in a couple weeks. But you can't understand the relationship of clauses if you don't know what conjunctions are are attaching these clauses. And the New American Standard, without question, I mean, with very minimal question, I should say, attempts to translate every single conjunction in the Hebrew and the Greek text. The ESV leaves out lots and lots and lots and lots of them because they think they don't have a meaning. The New American Standard, though, goes out of its way to try to represent in some way in English every conjunction that shows up in the original text. And that makes it useful for an English Bible reader to use a form-based translation like the New American Standard. It's the least amount of interpretation You're just trying to say, what does this word mean? You put it in that word. What does this phrase mean? And you're trying to communicate it. You're trying to retain word order when possible. It's a lower level of interpretation, which means for the teacher, a lower level of correction. Because they didn't unpack what atonement meant. I can unpack it myself when I teach it to you. Rather than giving more words to actually clarify what that one word means as a sense-equivalent translation will do for significant benefit. The weakness is that sometimes these translations can be a little cumbersome. They don't feel like the kind of English that I always am reading. And it also leaves more questions for the teacher to answer, but also for the interpreter when you're just trying to do your Bible study. Huh, I wonder what that means. And it might serve you to, in that moment, with your ESV open, go over and pick up the NIV and just say, huh, how did they actually render this clause? Because they were focused on trying to capture the meaning and not feeling as bound by the form. And so the NIV might actually help you say, huh, now I understand what that meant. Sense equivalence, seeking dynamic correspondence 
that retains historical features and captures meaning, but, not, but does not hesitate to translate words, grammar, and style into common English. My top two choices, the NIV and the New Living Translation. So the strength here is that it's usually very beautiful, very meaningful English. So across the globe, the most common English translation used around the globe is the New, New International Version. It, it's been shown to be able to work for those whose heart language is not English. They hear the NIV in English and they can grasp it if they know English at all. Clear, faithful expression of God's Word. The weakness, though, is that as you move in the cline away from form, you often even out of necessity, have to drop all kinds of connecting words, especially conjunctions, which makes it more difficult to track an author's thought flow. And, I mean, you've seen in my own teaching how important thought flow is. Sure. The question was a tension a few years back regarding the NIV translation committee and a desire to um, become more gender neutral rather than faithful. And that really was most apparent in what was called um, the TNIV. Uh, today's New International Version. And it's not even available anymore because of the way it hit the fan. The NIV, I have zero problem with. And, it, um, and you have to understand, this is important for me to note, that what translation you prefer or what translation theory you prefer Pastor John's been a, lo- a loud vocal advocate. He prefers the left side of the, con- of the continuum, the form equivalents. He's argued loudly for the ESV. But people like, and, and Wayne Grudem would be over there as well, people like D.A. Carson and Doug Moo, who helped lead the translation committee. Doug Moo is the leader of the translation committee in the NIV. These are solid, conservative Men of God, as conservative, D.A. Carson is as conservative as you can get within our circles. And he strongly prefers the NIV over the ESV. Um, and this is, so what's at stake here is not um, whether you're theologically faithful. Those on the New Living Translation Committee, further over, even close to idea equivalence, Many of them I know personally and were just very solid, godly men and women uh, that, that we would welcome into this room and that I would be willing to let teach up here. Um, so we need to make sure that we're not blurring 
For example, making God into a neutral entity. He is Father. And the Bible demands that we can't make him a mother. And if you and there are translations that have done that, and you just say, we can't go there. That's that is heresy. That's wrong. But the kinds of stuff that the NIV does, and the ESV does as well, actually. Um, ESV has chosen that when it comes to brothers, when brothers refers to brothers and sisters, it writes brothers and sisters, always putting a footnote, Greek text, brothers. And um, I think it's very reasonable to say brothers and sisters in our culture to let the ladies know they were talking to you too. And there's many cultures today that use simply the masculine form as their collective. When they use the masculine, it's either just for men or it's the collective form for the whole group. And that's, that's how it's working here. All right, let me wrap this up. So often, sense equivalence translations fail to represent text features like connectors, discourse markers just making it more difficult to track an author's flow of thought. I already said that. We move on to the last. Idea equivalents. These are more paraphrases than translations. They strive only to convey Scripture's concepts with little attempt to retain lexical, grammatical, and historical correspondence. Strength, high level of contemporaneity. contemporaneity. It's, it, it makes sense, it, but it often can be like, that doesn't sound like the Bible. Like, that doesn't sound like the Bible at all. And have we gone too far away from its original grounding? It's less helpful for study, less helpful for teaching, because they've just distanced themselves too far from the original. Now, let me just give an example of these translation theories at work on a very familiar passage of Scripture. Psalm 119 You've got five words. Ner, l'ragli, v'varacha, v'or, l'inthivachi. A lamp to my feet, your word, and light to my path. A lamp to my feet, your word, and light to my path. Five words in Hebrew. Let's consider a formal base, the, the most extreme formal-based English translation. Well, Young's Literal opens up and says noon. That's a Hebrew letter of the alphabet because Psalm 119 is an acrostic. And it actually tells you right there in the text, you're on the noon line. Okay? That's that letter right there, the noon. So it tells us noon. That's pretty word for word, just drawing it over identifying for us then it says a lamp to my feet to, sorry to my foot this is singular so it renders it singular it identifies there's no verb in the clause so it actually puts is in brackets for us because they don't want us to think that it's actually part of the text when it is part of the text it's just not lexicalized thy word your word and a light to my path. So this is 
I mean, it is about as word for word. The word order is identical. Everything is, is just taken directly over. A lamp to my foot is thy word and a light to my path. So I say, it's a number five on lexical correspondence, number five on grammatical correspondence, number five on historical correspondence. You can't get more formal and identified equivalents than we see there. But it, it doesn't sound quite right, at least not as we would talk. Here's the New American Standard. Your word is, so no noon up front, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Well, it reversed word order to make it sound more natural in English. It also rendered foot, which is singular, as a plural feet. But foot can be collective in Hebrew, meaning that they're rendering it exactly as, as an intent could be there. So my feet rather than my foot is, is absolutely fine, but they still made a decision. And then they have the conjunction. Everything else is the same. ESV, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Exactly the same. I think it's exactly the same. No difference. Now we go to sense. Your word is a lamp for my feet a light on my path. Notice that the NIV drops the conjunction that's part of the text. But notice also that there are two prepositions right there that are identical in Hebrew, but the ESV for stylistic variation changes the prepositions in English. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. So, I said, well, lexically, they went from foot to feet, they dropped a conjunction, and then they altered two prepositions. So grammar and lexicon, I said they were only threes, whereas history, there's no, no changes. They, they just kept everything in the time frame. New Living Translation. Notice that a little bit further over, your word is a lamp to guide my feet. They've just added interpretation. But they're helping us understand what it actually means. What do you mean that it's for my feet? The lamp for my feet. It's to guide your steps as you journey. And so the New Living Translation, they kept the conjunction that the NIV dropped. A light for my path. To guide my feet, they... Added a verb in, though. So, lexically, they altered things. Grammatically, less altering, because they include the conjunction, and altered word order a little bit. History, the same. New Living Translation. Your words are a flashlight to light the path ahead of me and keep me from stumbling. New Living Translation, that's like, 60s or 70s is when that was done. Sorry, the Living Bible. That's what I meant. The Living Bible. Notice how they completely leave lexical, grammatical, and history. 
They left word, but they changed it to words. Flashlight? I mean, that's as contemporary as can be. And yet they're trying to say, I want to reach the culture. What do we use today in our culture for a lamp? It's a flashlight. So they made a decision, a conscious decision that separated them from the original history and yet tried to make the Bible contemporary. To light the path, very similar to to guide my feet ahead of me and to keep me from stumbling. High levels of interpretation. And finally, the message. By your words, I can see where I'm going. They throw a beam of light on my dark path. So it helps capture it. It retains the history. You could have an oil lamp being described as a beam. That would be, that would, that's fine. He, he, they don't drop history significantly, though it is a little bit more, but totally give way to words. Word changes to words. There's no conjunction, full expansion of thoughts. This is, this is um, full extension of meaning. My encouragement is, but, but is, well, just, just note, we have seven different translations up there. All of them are saying pretty much the same thing in a different way. And so if I was teaching this, I wouldn't feel compelled. If I did all my homework, I looked at three different translations, and I was going to lead a Bible study... I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel like I even have to show anybody a different translation. They're all saying pretty much the same thing. Just at different levels of interpretation and clarity. Um, but then there's instances like we've already seen today where looking at a different translation can open my eyes up to things that I may have missed. Our time is up. Next week, grammar. Please come back. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.